A shocking crime gripped the community and soon the world. Reporters filled the courtroom to hear the bombshell legal strategy, self-defense. Would their approach work? And even if it did, would justice be served? This week's episode is The Murder of Betty Gore, Part 3. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Well, we had a lot of uh, good feedback from the first two episodes and folks saying that they were now watching the Hulu docu-series, or not docu-series, I always say that, the dramatization with a different lens now knowing all this. And uh, I found an interview that was conducted in with uh, Robert Udishin, the mm. defense attorney, who he said that he consulted on Candy and then was very disappointed in the portrayal that he saw he said he felt oh. it was inaccurate so he also he's consulting on the hbo show that's coming out later and he said that he was actually brought on set for that show and he said he feels that it's much more accurate but that he said he was disappointed he goes well you know it's artistic license but seeing it having been there having talked to them and then now seeing the end result i think he was disappointed in the way it was portrayed what did he say was not accurate specifically he said that they had, I think because Don Crowder was such a character in the show, that they had the Rob character sitting at the table not doing a whole lot. But oh. Rob is actually the one that did the direct examination of Candy. And so he was like, a lot of the things they had Don doing, I was actually the one doing. Mm. And also he said that he had he took issue with the way Don's character came across, that it was more of like a caricature and that it, he was like outrageous and out of control with he all was, the contempt did- Stuff. seem very eccentric well even before they got to trial their depiction of like she walks in once and he's in a tanning bed in the office and then he was uh just really like flashy and stuff he seemed i would agree with the caricature assessment and oh yeah he like she walks in and he's like doing sit-ups in yeah. his office and he was a really fit guy and he was very well known for like running in, in the middle of day like he would go like for a lunch break but instead of a lunch break he would like go for a run and when they made the Brian Dennehy version of the film in the 90s the late 80s early 90s and they cast Brian Dennehy to play Don Crowder Don Crowder was irritated cuz Brian Dennehy was a little bit less fit than he was in real mm-hmm. life so he was annoyed with the portrayal but Rob Udishin just said, you know, he was such a great attorney that they made him into sort of a clownish figure. Mm-hmm. He didn't use that term, but he said a caricature. And that's not really how it went. So interesting. interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe the HBO one will be more accurate. Hopefully and, so. Uh, yeah. I'll be interested to see how they depict what is always an issue when there's two people that know what happened and one of them's dead so you're mm-hmm. only getting one side of the story but is it the true story and how do you portray that in a tv show yeah so um the way they did it in the candy dramatization eh, i didn't not, love it it was kind of cheesy and i don't know, not very effective in my opinion so i'm interested to see how hbo handles that 
And I, of course, it hasn't come out yet, but someone on our Instagram said they checked the IMDb and the character of Betty only appeared in one episode. In the HBO uh, one? In the HBO one. And I thought, oh. surely not. Maybe it just hasn't, because those have to be manually updated by someone. I was like, sure, maybe they just haven't updated them. But he did say, Rob said that based on his being on set, that they focus heavily on the trial. So maybe. Oh, well, maybe know. she's not in it then. Yeah, you'd have to really have at least like flashbacks or something. I don't know. I also found out from a listener that Melanie Linsky's husband is uh, John Ritter's son. Oh, interesting. And he is the other cop in the dramatization. Okay, and the candy version? So okay, Jessica Biel's husband and Melanie Linsky's husband are both the police officers in I the show. No, I had no idea. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. It all comes full circle. Yes, it was all a little family affair on set. Indeed. Well, uh, we're going to get through the end of this today. This is all going to be about the trial and... The um, there's a lot of stuff that goes on that is just pretty mind blowing, but not maybe as mind blowing as the rest of the series. So if you haven't listened to episodes one and two, I know a lot of people like to binge it. So congratulations. Today is the (laughs) day you get to listen to all three episodes in a row. And we hope that we didn't disappoint. Someone said when the first one came out, what you've just told me is I have no sinisterhood for two weeks, but we'll have a lot of it in three weeks. And here you go. Here's all here's all three right in a row for you if that's how you choose to do it. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. After her arrest on June 27th, 1980 for the murder of Betty Gore, Candy Montgomery relied on the help of her fellow churchgoer and now attorney, Don Crowder. A graduate of SMU's law school in Dallas, Crowder was an experienced civil litigator, but he had never tried a criminal case. He enlisted the help of his associate, Robert Udishin, who had been handling the firm's criminal cases, but who had only graduated law school two years prior. Crowder was not intimidated by the daunting task at hand. Fellow attorney Howard Shapiro told the Dallas Observer, When Don Crowder was your lawyer, he was a passionate advocate for you. When he was your opponent, he was tenacious. And can you imagine, Rob Udishan was 27. Everybody involved is very very young. young. I mean, he's just a couple years younger than the victim and the person on trial. Mm -hmm. Everyone, yeah, I don't, Don Crowder seemed older in the the show. But yeah, these are all babies, essentially, Mm -hmm. uh, going through all this. As a civil attorney trying his first murder case, Crowder's tactics were unorthodox. Udishan and Crowder engaged with the press often, which both worked for them and against them. Udishan told the Observer he was leery of the press. Don loved it. He kept on giving him all this misinformation. I was afraid at the time, but in the end it helped us. The district attorney had no idea what our defense was going to be until we were in court. Crowder even made comments to the press in which he accused law enforcement of planting Betty's blood in Candy's car. And I think that was one of the things in the show versus real life is that when Candy came to Don, he said, listen, I do civil stuff. You need to talk to Rob. And until really it started getting the press and things, that's when Don kind of stepped in. But he still relied all the strategy and things. He relied on Rob to do it all because he had he had the criminal experience, even though he had not very much experience. That's mm-hmm. all he did was criminal law up till that. It seems pretty bold to accuse law enforcement of planting evidence. Yeah, that's like pre-gag order. Man, some of those interviews he was given in the early days was like, we don't know what the police are capable of. It was like a trial well, in the wrong. media. 
Yeah, and the, well, and he he would just go, well, there was blood in her car. Supposedly, it was hers. How do we even know it got there? They're the ones who said they found it. And then, meanwhile, the police are like, "We this is a housewife turned axe murderer." So they were all just feeding the press. Mm-hmm. Searching for a defense, Crowder had Candy undergo three separate lengthy hypnosis sessions and three sessions with the therapist. The sessions revealed a repressed memory of Candy being shushed by her mother in an emergency room as a child. It also brought forth Candy's version of events. She had been attacked viciously by Betty and was only acting in self-defense. When Betty shushed her, the emotions from her repressed childhood memory sent Candy into an uncontrollable rage. This would be the story they would tell the jury. And that's the problem with you you saying it's self-defense. Well, then you say, okay, well, self-defense is one or two and maybe you ran off. Their whole thing was we got to bring in these psychiatrists to see why the overkill. Yeah, yeah. Self-defense when 41 blows have occurred seems like um, it goes beyond just self-defense at that Mm -hmm. point. With sufficient evidence tying her to the crime, Candy was indicted by a grand jury on July 9th, 1980. Collin County Judge Tom Ryan oversaw the proceedings and with the national media attention seemed determined to see candy convicted Udishan explained to the observer judge ryan ran everything in Collin county back then he was giving us as hard a time as he could don was not a person to back down from anyone judge or not so he would stand up to ryan i imagine that's what you need if you know you're going into court with the judge that um seems like he already is biased which you never want in a judge Oh, and especially if now you're kind of at the time, Collin County was a much smaller jurisdiction. And now you have national media focused on you. It's kind of like, well, I'm I'm the one in charge. I don't care how many people are watching this. I'm the one that decides what happens in my courtroom. Awaiting trial. Candy was out on bond guaranteed by a local bail bondsman used frequently in Collin County courts. Late on a Friday afternoon, the parties gathered in Judge Ryan's court ready to discuss a gag order that would prevent both sides from talking to the press. The proceedings were delayed as the judge remained in his chambers. Suddenly, he emerged and announced they would be having a hearing on the sufficiency of Candy's bond. Unprepared, junior attorney Udishan did the best he could. And he said essentially it was like a sandbagging that clearly the the sheriff was totally prepared for it. The DA was totally prepared for it. The judge was prepared for it. They were kind of all back in chambers. And he's like, me and Candy are just waiting, going, really? What's the delay? And they're like, the judge isn't ready. Well, yeah, he's not ready because what was supposed to be a simple, you don't talk to the press? Okay. You don't talk to the press? Okay. Became this inquisition in, well, why did you use this person? Well, what sufficiency? Well, he gave us these documents that was all kind of meant to, I think because people were outraged that she admitted that this happened and was not in jail. So he's using it as an intimidation tactic? Yeah, and also to get her in jail because they say, well, the judge says, well, I don't find this sufficient. Yeah, I mean, again, if you're this rough and tough judge that doesn't take no for an answer and this has all the media attention on it, I imagine you're trying to come across a certain type of way to uphold your reputation. Absolutely. The Collin County Sheriff and Judge Ryan alleged that the bail bondsman Candy used didn't have the proper documentation to guarantee the amount of her bail. Despite having posted sufficient bond, Candy was rearrested. With the gag order signed, Candy's attorneys could not report her rearrest to the press. Not to be deterred, Don Crowder filed a $1.5 million federal civil lawsuit against Judge Ryan, the sheriff, and a long list of other officials in Collin County 
alleging a violation of Candy's civil rights. The filing was public, so even with the gag order, the press picked up Crowder's allegations of a corrupt judge wrongfully locking up Candy after she posted bond. After another hearing before Judge Ryan and a firestorm of questions from Crowder, Candy was released pending trial after spending one week behind bars. This is a pretty genius tactic when this you're is, not a, Yeah. This is uh, my kind of lawyering. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because you essentially get to lay out your entire yeah. case and your petition and it's public. You're like, um, okay, sure. We can play by the your game. And then he comes back with, um, of course, the media is going to pick this up. It's not just like a little bit either. It's a $1.5 million is a lot whenever, but especially in the 80s. Oh, yeah, certainly. And it's a federal lawsuit. And it's, you know, I'm, I don't think there's any evidence. But if it were me, you probably know someone in the media and be like, check the court right. filings tomorrow. Wink, wink, hint, mm-hmm. hint. So yeah, that's a really good way if they say you can't plead your case to the media shut up. You're like, well, I'm pleading it to a different judge. It's very smart, too. It shows like how he really does know the law, even though this is kind of sneaky law but Mm -hmm. it's like you always say be a zealous advocate for your client and this is being a zealous advocate for your client you're like we're not going to be silenced and if i have to go through some hoops and loopholes to get this out then that's what i'm going to do and don crowder was a civil attorney which i guess is the benefit of having a civil attorney run in tandem with your criminal attorney Mm -hmm. saying well in addition this is a violation of your civil rights and we should sue for damages while meanwhile rob's working on the criminal side i'm gonna file this lawsuit because i think her this was kind of a there's a word they use for it where it's like it's sort of uh false right it's like a they say uh well i I don't like this bond so we need to put her in jail it's a bail bondsman that they use all day long Mm -hmm. every day so it wasn't like they went to some random guy that nobody had ever heard of before they put up like the deed to their house i mean it was in for all the things candy did do they at least legitimately secured her release and then to have a judge decide kind of arbitrarily oh well mm," it's like a I can't think of the word for it. It starts with a P, though. It'll come to me later. It's like a shower thing. I'm like, it's a... A shower thought? It's a shower thing. So when you post bond with the bail bondsman, they are giving you the majority of the money, but you have to pony up like a percentage of the amount to them as like a retainer? Yeah, so normally you're on the you pay like 10%, and then the, the bail bondsman tells the court, hey, we'll collect the rest of this. So the court doesn't really get the whole amount. The ju- the bail bondsman says if they fail to appear, we'll cover that. Well, then that's when you have like bounty hunters that somebody has skipped bail because now you owe if it's a $10,000 bail, you pay 10%. You owe them the other 90%. They won't come after you and get their money. So the judge was alleging that this bail bondsman didn't have the proper amount of funds to cover it if she were to skip bail. It was it was more about uh, paperwork, like what they had. He said, well, we don't think that you really have the sufficient documentation that they've given you sufficient collateral and that you have sufficient money to cover this. And it was kind of confusing because, like I said, he had put posted up bail for all these other people. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you've taken this paper every single time before. And I think that's why Rob felt a little sad, sandbag when he walked in that day of like, we use this person that's been used a thousand times. Why all of a sudden is there an issue? And I think it was a like, Mm, we have Red to figure tape. out a way. Seems yeah, like, like they're just trying to hold up the process and oh, certainly. Uh, yeah, while they well, can make yourself look better that exactly. you're like she's out walking freely, going to the grocery store, and they're like, well, we'll get her locked up. It was only for you know that's 
it's still a week that, again, despite what she did, which we know she admitted to what she did and it's horrible, if you're validly out on jail, uh, out on bond, you don't want a system that just arbitrarily goes, well, we don't think you should be, though, so we're going to put mm-hmm. you back in jail. So that's why you have Don Crowders of the world willing to file a lawsuit on your what behalf. What a week I bet that was for her. Oh, Yeah. Crowder made a motion to transfer the trial's venue to a less biased county. His motion was denied after a contentious hearing. During jury selection on Monday, October 22, 1980, Don Crowder dropped a bombshell on the panel of possible jurors. According to the Times Record News, he told the shocked courtroom, On June 13th, Candy Montgomery killed Betty Gore. She did so with an axe. She did so in self-defense. The homicide was justified. We have quite a story to tell. Mrs. Montgomery will take the stand, and she intends to testify. I guess this is the definition of getting out in front of something. Yeah, I think so. And I and again, because there's reporters in the room, so that's when you can start to try to try the case in public, you mm-hmm. know, the court of public opinion. And you're exactly right. Just go ahead and lay it out there, because I know you're all curious. You know, by now, because they couldn't transfer venue, everybody's heard of this. I think even if you did transfer venue, everybody's heard of it. So... They, they already have their own preconceived notions. Yes, for sure. Gotta... Unable to contain his excitement over the case and wanting to combat what he perceived as the state's manipulation of the media, Don Crowder had given a television interview following jury selection. Judge Ryan held the lawyer in contempt and fined him $100 plus one day in jail. Later in the trial, too, so it made it seem a lot more contentious, I think, in the show. But later in the trial, they got crossways about something. And Rob Udishan said he threw him in jail at the end of the day in the middle of the trial. Damn. Which you're not allowed to do. <laughs> you oh, have to wait. They, it has to wait till the end so they yeah. can be with their client. And Rob Udishan said he had to go to the Court of Criminal Appeals in Austin to get Don out. So that is to the extent that... You want to have a fair trial. You want an unbiased judge. When you have a judge who is just essentially just trying to like gavel swing and be like, guess what? I'm in charge here. You're Sounds going like to jail. showboating. Showboating. Yeah, absolutely. The trial began on Tuesday, October 21st, 1980 at the Collin County Courthouse in McKinney, Texas. According to the Times Record News, spectators were calling the courthouse at 6 a.m. asking about the seats in court. By 8 a.m., there was a line. When the proceedings began, the courtroom that sat 200 was full, and about 30 spectators were turned away. It's a hotter ticket and come on one of our shows. Honestly, I mean, people were lining up around the courthouse. I would, and- I would have wanted to have seen it. Certainly, and if you're, I mean, this is a small town. They all know about it. It's a, you know, salacious type of topic. Uh, everybody wants to be there. I'm also surprised the courtroom sat 200. That's what I was thinking, because this is the courthouse that's in the McKinney Square downtown that's a theater now. It's no longer a courthouse. Mm. The new courthouse is much, much bigger uh, and has, you know, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 courtrooms. It's like huge. But this is the tiny one in downtown McKinney. I was like, really? Yeah, that's that more one? than I expected. Maybe, I guess, if it's kind of pew style, like, you know, just yeah. the long benches, you could just cram people Shove shoulder to in shoulder. There. The facts were simple. Candy Montgomery had swung the axe that killed Betty Gore destroying her face and crushing her skull with 41 blows. But Candy's attorney argued she had acted in self-defense. Crowder told jurors, Mrs. Montgomery had to defend herself with deadly force when, after being struck twice with the axe by Mrs. Gore and then gaining control of the weapon, the heavier and larger Mrs. Gore refused to let Mrs. Montgomery go. And this was very vital to the defense, is... 
the you can't leave. Yes, yeah. From everything I've read, this seems like the most accurate that the dramatization got. It seemed like they really tried to map everything out according to Candy's story. Yeah, and she, because, yeah, she participated in Evidence of Love, and I think they heavily pulled from that for the Hulu version. Mm -hmm. Although, Rob Udish had said she doesn't really participate in anything else. Like, she won't. After that, she didn't help with the Hulu show, HBO show, nothing that she stays out of it. But the kind of evolution of self-defense law in Texas was like, before 1973, you did not have a duty to retreat. But in 1973, Texas imposed this duty to retreat that essentially, if you want to say, I use deadly force on a person, then the defendant has to show that a reasonable reasonable person couldn't avoid the violent encounter by moving to a safe place. So Mm. I think that's why a lot of the testimony was she backed me against the wall. She slammed the door shut. She put herself between me and the door Mm -hmm. because this 1973 law that was passed, you know, eight years, seven years before this all happened, you would have to say, I could not have moved to a safe place. I had no other option to defend myself except for to defend myself violently. And they called it the retreat to the wall requirement under common law. And Texas codified that in 1973. So you had to just prove that you had detached reflection, that you thought about what you did and you thought, well, I checked every exit and then I attacked. And that's what she essentially heard her testimony because she had good attorneys walked her through every single element that was required Mm -hmm. to prove that. That's very interesting. The district attorney, on the other hand, argued that Candy could have retreated rather than, in his words, bludgeon Betty to death. He also argued that the amount of times Candy hit Betty was excessive, showing she went beyond mere self-defense. Alan Gore was the first witness, and the prosecution focused on his affair with Candy. He denied nothing and outlined their lunchtime rendezvous at the Como Motel. On cross, Crowder brought home the point that the pair ended things amicably. Allen confirmed under oath he could think of no reason why Candy would have murdered Betty. And Mr. Pomeroy kind of said, watching Allen's defense, I noticed he was very helpful to the, or watching Allen's testimony, he was very helpful to the defense. In the dramatization, it comes across that way too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it was artistic liberty but you know they're even like smiling at each other when he's on the stand and candy you know and kind of giving little reassuring uh facial expressions so it did seem as if he was the defense's witness yeah and and he seemed like he was at the very least neutral on what happened yeah not looking for revenge Not anything that could have helped the prosecution just sort of said, no, she was happy. She was totally fine. We were amicable. We were friendly. I have no idea what would have happened. And then the jury's mind goes, unless it was self-defense, that could be the only thing. I mean, that's what this testimony really brought across. It also is very powerful for and very uh, just shows how disconnected Alan was from how his wife was really feeling about things that he's like, yeah, yeah, we had an affair. No, I can't think of any reason that Candy would want to do that to her, though. You, dude, that's a huge, that's huge motive, in my opinion, and a a big reason why these things do happen. Yeah, and I think they were trying, what Don Crowder and Rob Udishan did successfully, is kind of pull the air out of the balloon, because the headline mm-hmm. is, the headline looks very, a jilted lover and a scorned woman murdered her romantic rival. Well, when you take the air out of that balloon and you go, there was no romantic rival. There was no romance. Here. Right. 
We've been broken up for a long time. And we're friends. And- we're we're totally fine. And yeah, but this was the first time Betty had really confronted Candy about the affair. Mm-hmm. Pat knew about it and they had already, you know, had their their deal with it. But Betty, although she suspected it, had never actually confirmed it. Mm-hmm. So this was the first time that happened. Therefore, I don't think Alan can really speak to how his wife would have felt about it. Or how Candy would have felt being confronted and feeling put on the spot. Mm -hmm. Because he would be called as a witness, Pat was sequestered to a witness room throughout the proceedings. At the end of the day, he had to rely on his wife to tell him what happened, though she was not eager to discuss. He told the Austin American statesman, I didn't know what was going on, and Candy didn't want to talk about it. I'm the husband. The only thing I can do is to support my wife. This answers a question I had while watching the dramatization, because I kept saying, why are Pat and Alan in this room reading magazines while the trial's going on? But if you're going to be called, Mm -hmm. you can't hear what's going on beforehand? Yeah, there's a thing. They always say you invoke the rule, and it's one of the rules of evidence. I can't remember off the top of my head, where if the... If a person who would be a witness is going to be present at the trial until they've given their testimony, they can't be in the uh, gallery because you don't want to have their their recollection yeah. tampered with. Essentially, you that don't makes be sense. like, oh, wait, yeah, it was that way. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. they already it colors what their story may have been or they go, oh, you know what? Maybe I was misremembering. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it Maybe totally it makes was- sense. I just didn't know that. So I kept going why are these two <laughs> hanging out in the back, just like just hanging out? Well, and then, you know, when you're getting one side of the story and it's probably a side that leaves out quite a bit, because if I were candy, I wouldn't want to come back and one rehash everything I just said, because it's super fucked up, but also she's accustomed to lying to her husband. Yep. She can pick and choose what happened, mm-hmm. pick and choose what version he heard. And, Another thing that they're, again, trying to take the air out of this balloon of, like, jilted lover, that's when they bring in all the details about her other affair that yeah. she had. And then, of course, Pat's like, oh, really? Again? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I, thought we, I thought we went over this. Nah, buddy. Nah, nah he, man. You did, but yeah. it didn't stick for her. No. Candy took the stand in her own defense. In her tearful testimony, she walked jurors in a full courtroom through her actions the day of the murder. Candy said that when she went to pick up Elisa's swimsuit from the Gore's house— Betty confronted her about Candy's affair with Alan. Candy admitted to the affair, assured Betty it was over, and apologized. Betty, according to Candy, refused to accept this. After leaving the room for a few minutes, Candy said Betty returned with an axe. She told Candy she didn't want her to see her husband ever again. Again, Candy said she assured Betty she was not interested in Alan. She then went into the utility room to grab the swimsuit so she could leave. According to Candy's testimony, it was at this point that Betty flew into a rage and shoved Candy to the ground, telling her that she couldn't have Alan and that she had to kill her. Candy recalled that at some point during the struggle, she managed to wrestle the axe away from Betty and hit her with the weapon in an act of self-defense. Try as she might, Candy said Betty would not allow her to leave the utility room. She was a very well-prepared witness because, again, these are all the elements that you'd have to prove that a reasonable person, if if you as a juror are only told 
that the rule is a reasonable person in that situation ha- reacted the way Candy did, and then you're told that a person is on top of you with an axe saying, you can't leave the room, I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Your brain puts two and two together, and you go, yeah, okay. That yeah, is that's self-defense. self-defense, yeah. Mm-hmm. As the struggle continued, Candy claimed Betty shushed her. Psychologist Dr. Fred Faison testified that it was the act of being shushed that was Candy's breaking point. Dr. Faison explained that the shush triggered repressed childhood trauma from when Candy's own mother shushed her during a time when Candy was seeking comfort while waiting to be seen at the emergency room. When these repressed memories surfaced, Candy began brutally attacking Betty. And then this covers the overkill, you went beyond what you needed, and so it's just they're going through the jury instructions with her testimony and just ticking every box. Do the prosecution and defense, they see the jury instructions ahead of time? They usually draft them. And in many, many cases, and I believe in homicide cases, it's pattern. Like it's a pattern that you follow. That's kind of not really a form, but you decide what is and isn't. And you can argue to the judge outside the presence of the jury what is and isn't included when they go back with the, you know, essentially the thing that's going to help them right. reach a verdict. So they know exactly like we need to cover this. We mm-hmm. need to say this without directly saying it. So they put two and two together. Yeah. That's yeah. And smart. they knew the 1973 statute required a detached reflection by the defendant in the present under this threat of harm and her saying, well, I checked these doors. I looked around. She mm-hmm. said she was going to kill me. And then the burden is on the defendant to say a reasonable person in this situation could not retreat or would not be able to retreat. They're literally backed against a wall. And that's the story that she told. They're, they're in a room. The Door is shut. There's no other way. There's no other exit. So it's just woman versus woman mm-hmm. and with you have an to, axe. For every every action that you take, you have to prove every action is reasonable. And so that's why they say, well, Betty pushed her to the ground. She grabs a hold of the axe. She hits her twice with a clear head. That's mm-hmm. reasonable. And then for the other 39 blows, they say, oh, she had this triggered memory. She didn't know what she was doing. And then that covers reasonableness. Mm-hmm. At least that's their argument is that that makes that reasonable. On the stand, Candy admitted exactly what she did. I didn't think. I didn't think at all. I raised it and I hit her. I hit her and I hit her. And she fell slowly almost to a sitting position. I kept hitting her and hitting her. I felt so guilty, so dirty. I felt... So ashamed. Candy continued, admitting, I was mad at her for messing up my life. I remember being so afraid she would get back up. She told the packed courtroom that she only stopped swinging the axe once she reached the point of utter exhaustion. So this is where it gets a little confusing for me. Because if she has at this point disassociated and essentially like the psychiatrist said she blacked out she doesn't even know what she's doing right now then how would you know you felt guilty you felt dirty you felt ashamed you were mad at her for messing up your life that is for the jury to decide whether that's reasonable that she felt those ways and reacted in that way to me as a prosecutor uh, like the prosecution i would say okay so you were at the point of hitting her you decided you were mad that she was she mm-hmm. messed up your life. That's your motive that you're ki- now at the very least you're killing her, even if it's not premeditated. But then I suppose you point to I remember being so afraid she would get back up. 
And if you're on the jury and you're swayed by the argument that she was literally just doing this out of fear, all the doors were locked, they were the exits were blocked. I mean, that's that's for the jury to decide whether what weight they give to the disassociative argument, the argument that, you know, the testimony that he messed up her life. And as we'll see from the jury, they I mean, they they took it in and they determined what they determined. It's also real fucked up for her to say I was mad at her for messing up my life. When she didn't make, she didn't want you to have an affair with. That was all on you. You, you messed Ellen, up your own life. Yes, collectively, you and Ellen messed up a lot of people's lives. Yes, yeah, permanently. Yeah, yeah, and then you went and messed up two children's lives, uh, Alan's life. You destroyed a life, mm-hmm. all of Betty's family's life. It's just very a lack of self awareness. But I think it also adds to the argument of. This is all because of repressed childhood trauma. Like, I, mm-hmm. I can't be responsible for what I've done because this is all stuff I've been harboring since I was four years old, and therefore I can't be held accountable. Yeah, that's the, yeah, and that's the argument they make. Dr. Ronald J. Washington, a Dallas physician who treated Candy, testified that she had committed the murder after suffering a disassociative reaction, saying... Mrs. Montgomery was aware of what she was doing, but she was reacting in an instinctual context. I think she could not stop. And this plays to the power of professional experts when you have a physician saying she knew what she was doing. Therefore, she knew she felt guilty and dirty and knew what she was doing, but she just couldn't stop. Then on the jury, you're like, well, he's a physician. Surely he he knows. He's an and expert. He treated her. Yeah, mm-hmm. he treated her. And and it's a two step that they're they're going down. Step one is self defense that they established, and step two, then okay, if it was self defense, why'd you do this? And then they cover that as well. So mm-hmm. it's answering these questions. You want to anticipate the question that the jury is going to have, and go ahead and have not just an answer, but an answer from an expert in a very uh uh, what's the word I'm looking for. Like ex- laying it out in layman's terms where yeah, it's very like easy a, to put the pieces together. Yeah. And in a way that's, you know, going to convince them, like an extremely yeah. convincing way that exactly right. That they it's not a bunch of jargon that mm-hmm. it's very clearly, oh, a disassociative reaction. But by that, I mean, she was unable to stop. Like yeah. my medical opinion was she couldn't stop. Well, then they like you said, oh, it's a doctor. They connect the dots for you. Yeah. So you don't have to think too hard. Also, in the dramatization, the whole trial, it Makes it seem like Don Crowder, again, is kind of just wheels off in this showboat. But they had a really good defense and were presenting it very well. It also shows in the dramatization that the prosecution were a bunch of bumbling idiots and didn't really know what they were doing. They weren't objecting when they should have objected. They kind of just banked on the fact that everyone was going to buy the fact that what the media had been touting this whole time. So I don't... There's not a ton that says, like, if that was actual, if that was really what was going on, or if that was more um, creative liberty. Well, it sounds like the only living member of the defense team, and I think also the prosecution team, or at least that's talking to the media, is Rob Udishin. And he said he thinks that the dramatization on Hulu was very inaccurate, so we'll see what what they come up with on the HBO version. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that it was as much bumbling, but I do think it was arrogant. Oh, it's a slam dunk. 
Yeah. She just got up there and said that she murdered her. And she also said she did it 41 times. Clearly, that's not self-defense. And especially given this new 19... Because before 1973, you had no duty to retreat. If somebody attacked you, you got to attack them back. And then in 1995, it went back to that. So from 1973 to 1995... Oh, so now it's it's back to where you don't have a duty to retreat? Oh, very loose in Texas. It's a very loose self-defense law in Texas. We had the Mm. Castle Doctrine, which got added. And then we also, in 07, they expanded it, which is the Stand Your Ground Law, as long as you have a right to be present in a place... So it's not, I don't know if it's bizarre, but it's interesting that in this, this trial occurred during this period of time under Mm -hmm. Texas law where you, in theory, would have a duty to retreat that you think like, oh, that's how self-defense laws possibly, in your opinion, maybe should be. Well, still yet, they were still able to Mm -hmm. argue self-defense in this case based on the factors that were outlined in that statute. But Mm -hmm. yeah, no, no, you don't have a duty to retreat at all. Character witnesses were paraded through court. The prosecution portrayed Betty as a quiet woman who was never prone to violence, whereas the defense characterized her as standoffish, difficult to get along with, and suffering from mental health problems. The investigators testified, as did the psychologist and hypnotist. In his closing statements, Crowder told jurors that the state had failed to meet its burden of proof, arguing that they had presented not one word of evidence that has refuted the testimony of self-defense. He also painted an ugly picture of Betty. According to the Abilene Reporter News, Don told jurors, When Betty Gore came at Candy Montgomery, she was no longer a human being. She was an animal. He encouraged jurors to acquit Candy, saying when they did, they would be Acknowledging natural law, confirming and recognizing that deadly force must be met with deadly force. For his part, District Attorney Tom O'Connell tried countering Crowder's version of events. He called the Dallas County Medical Examiner to the stand, who testified. Any one of the three blows to the head, including a massive 10-inch gash that penetrated the skull and pierced the brain, could have killed Mrs. Gore. The prosecutor then explained to jurors that when Betty was knocked out by the axe, the right of self-defense ended. Even if you are attacked, that does not give you the right to kill someone. So you have these battling arguments, and I don't love calling her an animal. Uh, That's horrifying. I think... uh, you can say, you know, deadly force and met with deadly force, but to say, I think that's going beyond just being a decent advocate for your client. And that's not even dipping the toe, leaping over the line into victim blaming that mm-hmm. she was a rabid, vicious animal mm-hmm. coming after some, you know, it's you also can say, conjecture. Yeah. That's like too. you weren't there. You don't, you don't know what happened. So can you object in closing arguments? No, I mean, only if it's, uh, you know, if they're bringing something that wasn't in evidence, you'll always hear the facts will show or the, the you know, as we presented to you mm-hmm. in this trial, this is shown. You have a lot, a lot of liberty, though. Mm-hmm. The trial concluded after eight days. Judge Ryan told jurors they could convict Candy of murder or voluntary manslaughter or they could acquit her. The jury of nine women and three men began its deliberations. According to the Austin American statesman, while they waited for the jury verdict, Pat hugged a crying candy and told her, This is the first day of the rest of your life. He is being very supportive for a husband that was cheated on for many, many months. Twice. And this is now, it resulted in this. He's really standing by her side. 
And the impact it has on their kids and their yeah. whole family, their finances. I mean, they were having to, this was not a pro bono case. You know, Rob right. and Don were getting paid as they deservedly were because they put on quite a quite a defense. Oh, yeah. So I think they cleaned out uh, retirement accounts, you know, had to put up the house deed for the bond, all this stuff that she wrecked everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's he's standing by her. His prediction turned out to be true. After deliberating for just under five hours, the jury found Candy not guilty based on her claim of self-defense. The number of axe wounds didn't play a role in the deliberations, according to juror Alice Doherty Rowley, who told the Dallas Morning News. We determined it never had a bearing on the verdict at all, whether it was one gunshot or a thousand whacks. This is hard for me to wrap my head around. Your face makes me think you agree. (laughs) Yeah, I found this quote in an old article from, you know, around the, I think it might have been from like the 20th anniversary or it was from around the time, quoting that when they interviewed her at the time. That's so absolutely bizarre to me to say we didn't even consider the overkill unless that's the power of the expert testimony that, oh, well, anything after the first two According to the medical examiner, it doesn't matter one any one of the three blows to the head. We don't know what order that the those happened in. If she was already passed away, it doesn't matter how many other times you attacked her with the axe. Because to then the jury's thinking it was this childhood trauma that came back. She's not even really uh, she knows what she's doing, but she can't stop. According to the physician, it's yeah. out of her hands almost. So even if she was dead but then also we had we talked about in the last episode that the uh medical examiner determined that she was alive for 40 of the blows yeah it's just that the one in the maybe the one in the head didn't come till later yeah the last one yeah so again it's once you've been hit with an axe a couple times, I've never been hit with an axe, but I imagine you're not getting back up, and at some point you can open that door and leave mm-hmm. if you want to. Maybe not in the beginning. But then comes in the argument of once it got to that point, she was no longer of her sound mind and was reacting in a way that she couldn't control. Yeah, or you have... A jury in a more conservative rural area that sort of holds on to this, like, you know, self-defense, the the sanctity of self-defense and saying, well, if the question is, would a reasonable person in this situation have left the room if they could have? And it's like, well, she attacked me, so I think it's fine to attack her back. That could have been the thinking, mm-hmm. too. Uh, or they proved well enough through the testimony because again we only have one person's version of what happened Mm -hmm. in that utility room that all the doors were blocked the exits were blocked i had to attack her and then yeah like you said explaining through the expert the disassociative anything else beyond one or two doesn't really factor in for us because that that's reasonable because she had this disassociative Mm -hmm. reaction it's interesting though to your point of maybe it's a more conservative rural jury that nine of the jurors were women and if that is true, that they're more conservative, you would think their um, beliefs of marriage would be pretty, you know, um, conservative. And, and you would think, well, she got what was, you know, she should have attacked her because you don't cheat on, you don't have an affair with a married man's, you know, it's interesting sure. how, like, you can compartmentalize these things. But in the end, like, 
hopefully they're just going based on the evidence. And I think the defense put up a better um, case than the prosecution did. Yeah. And I mean, I think when you hear the the verdict, you want to say, and we'll hear from the audience, not the audience, but the those who were actually in the courtroom, you know, is it stunned and everything. But when you know, OK, going down check by check of everything they had to prove, they did a mm-hmm. very effective job of proving everything they needed to. Mm-hmm. After the verdict was read, the Dallas Observer described the courtroom as falling under a stunned silence. As Candy walked through the crowd, spectators shouted, Murderer! Jurors had to be escorted to their vehicles. Spectators were outraged. One reportedly asked, How can they let a confessed murderer go free? Another said, She took a life. She should pay. They'll send you to jail for stealing a five-pound bag of sugar, but if you kill someone, you get off scot-free. It's interesting to me that I guess back then, I don't think the first televised, wasn't it, was OJ the first televised trial or was it Lorena Bobbitt? It was right around there, I think. Menendez, maybe? Maybe, yeah. They all happened so close together. 90s were a wild time. Yeah. But that you don't show the jury Mm -mm. because you don't want people to know who was on the jury, but you have 200 spectators sitting in this jury room that know in a small town who was on this jury and then like people talk so your anonymity is completely violated like you have no protection that to me seems um stupid for lack of a better word that you would just allow like all these people to see who the jury is and then that puts them in danger if the spectators don't agree with the verdict with the outcome uh, that's a great point i don't um i don't really know that there's ever really a situation where they put them in like a hidden room mm-hmm. you know because it is that's part of the constitutional guarantees that you have a public proceeding and you have a right to see you know trial by jury the in very limited cases where they you know they don't want to have anybody in the room for whatever uh, victim purposes you know if a victim is testifying mm-hmm. or something like that you know underage or somebody but yeah that's a good point that i guess because there was no social media really and the newspapers were on on site and if a juror wanted to give an interview which mm-hmm. like i said i think this juror that was in the dallas morning news it was years later but you're right i mean trying to walk to your car when everyone's screaming and freaking mm-hmm. out and even you know for candy technically was acquitted they're screaming at her as she's walking to her car yeah and I mean, not just that day, but like a week later, you try to go to the grocery store and somebody, you know, I mean, I feel like this is one of those times where I would not want to be on the jury because I would be afraid that, you know, I, I you don't want a jury member to be swayed because they do fear mm-hmm. if I don't give the crowd what they are wanting, then I could be in danger myself. And hopefully the crowd can be pissed off without also being violent, mm-hmm. which luckily that's what happened here. There were, you know, they, there's no reports of any jurors being harassed or anything like that. But you're totally right, especially in a smaller town. Even if, you know, you say, oh, well, that guy looks familiar. Oh, yeah, he knows. Them. Oh, that's my friend's cousin's brother, whatever. You know, people are connected in these places. Mm-hmm. So, Or even in bigger trials now. Yeah. I mean, I've never really thought about it, but... There's, I mean, very um, contentious, hot-button trials that take place, and if somebody gets off that the general public feels like shouldn't, and they were, some people were in there watching that, like, 
Oof. I never really thought about that till now. Yeah, and I think that's why they really do their best to just call jurors by their numbers and, like, keep them separate, uh, you know, separate entrances and stuff from where, mm-hmm. you know, defense and But you still see their face. Coming. You do. Maybe that's a, a benefit of the pandemic. Just be like, I need to wear my mask. Although oh, then there yeah. was arguments from uh, attorneys saying we need to be able to see a juror's face, that mm-hmm. we need to be able to see them if they look bored or tired or rolling their eyes or whatever, uh, frowning, smiling, et cetera, that it's harder for them to provide the defense or even, you know, in a plaintiff's case, like mm-hmm. the advocacy that they can without having that input. So it's that a hard sense. balance. Mm-hmm. After the verdict, Betty's father told reporters, As far as I'm concerned, justice will be served. She has to live with it. I wouldn't say I was happy with the verdict. We we don't know what happened, and we will never know what happened. In the years following, Crowder's former law partner described the reaction of the community to the observer. That case made Don both famous and infamous. A lot of people in civil practice couldn't understand how he could defend a criminal, a murderer. Crowder later wrestled with his defense, telling reporters decades later how he watched Betty's family throughout the trial saying they were simple farm folk and they didn't understand that I had a job to do. It bothered me a lot that their faces still haunt me. I won't say I was glad to hear that because that's sad, but it made me, it, it reaffirmed like they have feelings too. And these trials affect defense attorneys too, even though he wasn't really even a defense attorney, but that, or he didn't do criminal law. Like, that is bothersome. Like, they see what's going on. In the end of the day, like, they don't want to be there. Defend, like, a, a life was lost very heinously. And you just want to make sure that they get the, the defense they need. And Rob Udishan, who is now retired and lives out in Asheville, North Carolina, he hmm. gave an interview with the Lakewood Advocate, which is a prestigious local publication in our actual neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We we talked to once, but he said that, you know, a part of his self-care, essentially, and, like, mental health was just trying to take a step back from certain cases and under like trying to parse out what they did from them as a person. And then also making sure that the law is carried out. And he said he had no doubt in this case that he thinks it was self-defense. He believed it, you know, having talked with her, taken in all the evidence being there, he said the jury made the absolute right decision. He said there was a lot of hostility, obviously, but he thinks that they got it right in the end, that the jury got it right in the end. Uh, But it's, Definitely um, lawyers. There's a reason why attorneys have extremely high rates of uh, substance use problems and self-harm mm-hmm. and things like that, because it can really weigh on you. Because even though you did your job ethically, how you thought was correct, it still has this impact of somebody's going to be disappointed on the other side. And it, it breaks your heart. Mm-hmm. Not to mention all the heinous details you've heard and pictures you've had to look at. And I mean, yeah, it's not for the faint of heart for sure. Yeah. Walking you through every single possible Mm -hmm. detail. It's crushing. And it's, it's emotionally, like I said, attorneys have a lot of mental health issues. That's why we have these organizations where you can reach out. And sadly, I think it was about two or three weeks after Don Crowder gave this interview, he died by suicide Mm. and, it's it. I don't think there's any statement of you know the connection, but I think it's just a testament sort of to the long, the hard toll that it takes yeah. on you emotionally. Yeah, that's super sad. And so, and you know, and and things, and of course, you know, you that's another family that's impacted by all of this. And I think that that just goes to what um, Rob Udishin, who's now. Uh, retired, you know, said to the, um, you know, the interviewer when he talked about like, you know, I don't have, he said he doesn't have a specific routine, but he said cases like Candy and then there's another capital murder case that came to his mind that he said when 
taking those cases, it's not just taking in all that really awful information. But he says, when I truly believe my client is innocent, deserves this defense, he says it's extremely stressful because people's lives are at stake. You don't want to do something wrong because if you make a wrong step, it's going to somebody's going to end up in prison. So he just to the extent possible, he said, you know, he tries to travel, that that's a really big stress relief. He said when he finishes up a big trial, he and his wife would like take a vacation, disconnect, Mm -hmm. try to get away, because I think a lot of that is uh, it can if you try to when you're burned out and you just try to keep working and like, okay, well, I'll just take the next case like Mm -hmm. that one didn't go all take the next case. I think he's for being, you know, an attorney, a young attorney in the late 1970s, early 1980s, that's an extremely progressive attitude that he had yeah. toward it of like, uh, because I think that's was like this old guard attitude of like, well, just work harder, have yourself a, a bourbon and just go back to work. And he's like, no, I need to take care of my mental health. Yeah. Because not only for yourself, but then also because you're not going to be your best self for your next client if you're super burned out and still struggling with what happened on your last case. Yeah, absolutely. So finding that stress release and he now, of course, he's I think his practice is still in Dallas, but he lives primarily kind of retired and does things remotely and everything. And I think that's very important. Exactly what you said, having that self-care so that you can now be the uh, the next best advocate Mm -hmm. for the next person you help. After her acquittal, Candy and Pat tried to go back to normal in an interview with reporters on October 30th. Candy answered the door holding a kitchen knife. She told the reporter with a smile. Don't worry, I'm not dangerous. She also said that she was grateful for her hypnotist, saying, My hypnotist helped me to remember, and now I hope he can make me forget. I don't love that she's being cheeky about the whole thing. Joking around about a kitchen knife and no. open the door? Yeah. But the date of the paper article was the day of the acquittal. Yikes. So it's not like, well, six months later, we went and caught up with her. I was... Kept checking the dates. I was like, surely, surely she didn't make a joke. No, that day. same day. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't, I can't even say too soon because there's never a time that, that is appropriate for that. It's also, it's not like she was claiming innocence and mm-hmm. then they said, yes, you're innocent. She fully admitted that she did this. Correct. Whatever the reasoning was, she has said, yes. I hit her and killed her with an axe 41 times. How you can make light of any part of that is beyond me. And also the focus on the me. She ruined my life. I want to forget. I want to do this. Not like, let's try to make amends. Like, I want to talk about what I did, especially the absolute breach of trust with the children, with the Gore children. I mean, Bethany was so young, but with Elisa, of like being the one that had custody of her at the time mm-hmm. of this happening giving her the peppermint taking her to the movies that's just such something that's going to rock your foundation yeah. of trust in people and not accepting that that's what you did i don't die it's it's disgusting an yeah. interesting uh interesting attitude to take with reporters things were never the same for the montgomery's in their community candy told reporters from the statesman it was hard to forget the murder saying When I hear about the Wiley football team, I don't think about the Wiley football team. I think about the Wiley axe murder. There are too many memories. In an effort to start over, they sold their house and moved to Georgia after Pat got a job offer with Georgia Tech. Pat told reporters, We are happy about Candy, but obviously you have to feel sorry about Alan. Despite the move, Pat and Candy eventually divorced. In 2009, Candy became a licensed professional counselor dealing with troubled youths. She practices in Georgia under her maiden name. I had to reach out to a 
licensed professional counselor I know who does not practice in Georgia or Texas and just kind of as a general, what is happening here? And I think there's disclosure requirements that vary by state. And also timing wise, like she didn't become licensed until 2009. If you say in the past 10 years, have you been convicted? She's never been convicted. Yeah, you know, in the true. past 10 years, in the past 20 years, have you been convicted, arrested even? You might not have to disclose well, it. She was arrested, but I guess if it was past the, the statute, yeah, there's a lot to unpack in what was just said. One, when I hear about the Wiley football team, I don't think about the Wiley football team. I think about the Wiley axe murder. That's so disassociating yourself from it. Like, you mean the axe murder that you committed? It's not the yeah. Wiley axe murder as if you had nothing to do with it and you're an outsider. Yeah, or like a neighbor who, you know, like we said for a while before she was arrested, neighbors were like, is there a madman on the loose that's killing people? It's not like she's a neighbor going, I can't believe one of my neighbors killed someone else. You are the one that did Mm -hmm. the murder. You are the one that did the, well, I guess murder that's justified by self-defense. But you're the one that did this killing. And then to say the Wiley Axe murder. Like you said, it's very, she's very much distancing. Yes. Yeah. There are too many memories. I bet there are. You know who else has too many memories? There, her kids. Well, one of yeah. them was a baby, but who doesn't know, have I mean, any like, memories because of you? Yeah, it's as if, like you said, she's the only one that's affected. It's just no self awareness, very Poor egocentric, me. the whole entire thing. Oh yeah. And then I don't think I would love if I found out my licensed counselor had killed someone with an axe. Everybody is entitled to choose their providers. But that's a personal thing on me that I suppose if we don't thoroughly Google everybody that cares for us, we couldn't know if someone had been acquitted. Yeah. It's like the what we just talked about in our Nashville show, which will be released on the feed later. You know, when you have this crime that's been committed years past and then someone gets out of jail and then just sort of goes, well, I had a little run in with the law a few mm-hmm. years back. And it's like, well, by that you meant you axe murdered someone or in that case it was with a hunting knife that you sort of gloss over the details. Mm-hmm. You and, yada you yada know, over a lot of stuff. Yeah. My question now is now that this case is getting a lot more attention than it probably has since it happened. Do you think that it will be easy for people to fi- I mean, they're going to see her face everywhere. Even though it was uh, 22 years ago, people don't change that much. I'm sure you're like, wait a second, that looks like my counselor. Yeah, and a lot of le- less, you know, like you're not going to see People Magazine like linking to her website or whatever, but some kind of more like gossip-based magazines just straight up link to her practice website. I mean, everything's public. You know, if people want to look me up, my law license is public. Everything's public. So for something like that where you're licensed and you're providing counseling or law practice or medical, whatever, to the the, uh, citizenry, it doesn't matter how much of a public figure you are. All that stuff is still totally fair. You know, Tom Girardi's Girardi's law license and stuff was all, Mm -hmm. you know, all those were. So things like that when just because you're also – in the public spotlight, oh, well, we need to hide, you know, their licensure. In fact, maybe you don't. It needs to be less hidden because you have more. Now there's more at stake for your practice. So who knows if, you know, maybe if somebody's been, you know, if you're working with youths, you know, young people, they're only going to see you for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to age out of care and stuff. But if she's been working with somebody for several years and the parent just says, I don't care. I think she's great. I'm not going to see anybody else that they may be able to compartmentalize Mm -hmm. that and, and separate it. 
Allen married Elaine Williams, a woman he had met at the church. After the trial, they moved to Saxe, one town over from Wiley. In an interview on the 30th anniversary of the crime, Betty's daughters told the Dallas Morning News their father and new stepmother were particularly cruel in the years following their mother's murder. Elisa told DMN reporters that Elaine forced a 10-year-old girl to read Evidence of Love, the true crime book detailing in graphic language how her mom was brutally killed. Elisa told the morning news, I had to give her a little summary after each chapter. This is so unbelievably fucked up. Like a fucking book report. Yes. And let me just tell you what's in each chapter. Murder and sex. Yes. And not appropriate for maybe any 10 year old. Yes. Any 10 year old, but especially when it's about your own mom. Yeah. It's, and again, it's written. It does have interviews with what would be Elisa's grandfather, Betty's dad. But the vast, vast, vast majority is Candy talked for hours and hours with Jim Atkinson, one of the co-authors. So a lot of it is from this perspective of Candy and mm-hmm. does not and and the perspective of Alan as ugh, she was kind of a nagging wife. So you're now tainting and ruining this child's memory, not to mention the absolute trauma of reading about yeah. Pools of blood no. coagulated on the floor, her mother's eye being missing. I mean, how it many is, times she was yes. hit with the axe, the the depths of the wounds. It's disgusting. And I can't think of any reason she would have her do this but for to traumatize her and abuse her and exert some kind of disgusting control and power over her. It's uh yeah. There was when I read that I was like <gasps> I mean Like, there's no reason for that. It would be one thing if it was like, when I was 10, I went into the public library, and this was a local case, so it was up on the shelf, and I pulled it down and started reading it, and they snatched it out of my hand and said, do not read that. It's But it's the opposite. It was like, she was living her 10-year-old life, and they're like, anyway, here's a book you now have to read. Yeah, here's more trauma for you. I wonder if it was like, I'm your mom now. Like, just a cruel stepmom thing, like... Your mom was never as good as you really think she was. And this was a woman that also knew Betty. They had been in the church together and, you know, had also in the dramatization, they introduced her pretty early on after Betty's been killed, coming over, bringing food to Alan and the kids and eating dinner with them and taking care of the baby and pretty immediately stepping in as the mother figure to them. Mm-hmm. And, and she had been divorced for a couple yes, months before yeah. that happened. Yeah. So, and uh, so I don't, it's, it was very unsettling and disgusting to watch that in the dramatization. And then to find out, oh, it was way worse than they even yeah. made it. Alan and Elaine also allegedly had the girl stand in a tub of ice and did other times withheld food as punishment, according to the interview. Elisa told the DMN, My stepmother told us if we said anything about their treatment, they would separate us. Once, little Bethany showed up to her grandparents' house with tufts of hair missing from her head. Betty's father told the morning news, I told Alan, if that little girl comes back here with any more hairs pulled out of her head, I'll take you down and pull out every one of your hairs. Eventually, Betty's parents obtained full custody of the two girls and raised them safely in Kansas. Both girls graduated as salutatorians of their high school classes. In the 2001 interview with the Dallas Morning News, Bethany told reporters, I think my mother would be proud of me and my sister. I, uh, to Betty's dad, 
Oh, that you're man. Already, you've already suffered that loss. Your son-in-law is a piece of shit, and then you find out your grandkids are being abused. That man is a saint for not having done more than he did. I mean, in reading about, I mean, because like I said, he participated in evidence of love, and for, I mean, it doesn't uh, offset the complete trauma that Elisa had to endure reading that book. But at least she knows her grandpa was like an angel. I mean, yeah. he comes across like. He takes care of like the, her Betty's mom. Understandably, was extremely distraught when all oh, of this happened, yeah. and like driving them back and forth, and also just like the neighborhood in Kansas when they found out that this had happened. He he was like, "Okay, I have to wake up at five a.m. I have to go plow my fields." And then when he showed up, all of his neighbors had come, and they were already like plowing his field for him. And like Aww. you just like it's like such a good dude that had not, he had you know you don't ask for that. And then when the shit goes down, like he steps up and is like. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, they're your girls, so I'll let you raise them. And is like, hell no, absolutely mm-hmm. not, absolutely no. not. Grandpa's putting the kibosh on that. No, Grandpa's, yeah, Grandpa's an angel. <laughs> In that same interview with the Morning News, Betty's daughters detailed how Alan was not invited to Elisa's 1996 wedding, with Bethany threatening not to come if he was there. Betty's father recalled how he expressed frustration with Alan's reaction after Betty's murder. I said, "You didn't show any remorse." Alan said, it didn't bother me very much. We weren't getting along anyway. Bethany recognized that her parents weren't destined to be together, but mourns the life she never got to have with her mom, telling the DMN. I know that mom and dad would have gotten a divorce. I think she would have left him and we would have moved back to Kansas. That would have been perfect. Uh, I'm sorry. Even if you're not getting along with your spouse, to have no... Or to to say it didn't bother me very much that the mother of your children was axed to death by your former lover in the house where your infant daughter was sleeping in the next room. What is wrong with you? Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. And then to feel that is horrible. It's horrible. That you probably should feel guilty that the mother of your children suffered this fate in part because of this tryst that you created. But then to say to her grieving father, mm. it didn't bother me very much. We weren't getting along anyway. That's beyond. It, yeah, It is. Beyond. And it really, um, it makes me feel like with knowing that and also knowing how he treated the children, mm-hmm. I don't think he was accurately portrayed in the dramatization um, as far as his personality goes. And at the very least, if... You know, he wants to say, oh, well, my ex-wife did a lot of that stuff. I it's, It doesn't matter. They're still your kids. You should have mm-hmm. been there. Or you should have been, you know, aware protect of what them. was happening. Yeah, protect them. For what it's worth, it seems now, based on, to keep it vague, based on online activity, they have reconciled. That the Alan children and, and Alan? And the children have reconciled, at, at the very least, digitally reconciled. Whether mm-hmm. they don't live in the same place, but at least... Hopefully for, you know, it, your own healing, mm-hmm. you, that can, you know, saying dad's not coming to your wedding, that's still a lot of hurt. And maybe, you know, we all can grieve in our own ways and deal with it in our own ways. So good, bad, or indifferent, it does at least seem like they've reconciled. But mm-hmm. I don't know how you would ever forgive a stepmom taking, forcing a little girl to, to read that book and no, do all those things. No, that's, no. The book Evidence of Love by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson was published in 1984 based on reporting done for Texas Monthly. The book was adapted into the 1990 made-for-TV movie A Killing in a Small Town, starring Brian Dennehy as Don Crowder and Barbara Hershey as Candy. 
In 2021, both Hulu and HBO Max optioned the story. Hulu's Candy was released in May of 2022, starring Jessica Biel as Candy and Melanie Linsky as Betty. Linsky explained to Pop Culture Magazine how she approached her role. I wanted to make sure Betty's story was told in the fullest way possible, that you got an understanding of the fact that she was a woman who was really struggling and had absolutely no help in any respect, and just the loneliness of that, of being somebody who needed help and was getting it from nowhere in a time when everyone was supposed to just be like, oh, I got married, so that's the rest of my life set. HBO's adaptation Love and Death, starring Elizabeth Olsen as Candy and Jesse Plemons as Alan, was written by TV producer David E. Kelly and wrapped production in April of 2022. It's set for release later this year. When reporters reached out to Candy on the 20th anniversary of the murder in 2000, she replied saying, I'm telling you in big, bold letters, I'm not interested. According to the Dallas Morning News, when they reached out on the 30th anniversary for comment, she didn't respond at all. And that's kind of in line with what Rob Udishin said in his interview that he doesn't really talk to her um, and that, you know, she participated in evidence of love. But then when that movie came with Barbara Hershey, she didn't cooperate with that. And then everything that's pretty much happened since the book Evidence of Love, she's just been totally hands off. And she she talked to Aunt Jim Atkinson for that. And Rob Udishin goes, I think she felt sorry she did that, probably because it didn't come across as 100 percent. It does. It's at least favorable insofar as the book presents her side of things but it wasn't wholly she was not a saint it does she's not a sympathetic character no and i think she he said she felt sorry or she was sorry she did that probably because you like you said with people going on reality shows Mm -hmm. anything like that when your story is in someone else's hands you don't really get to uh, control what happens to it but yeah she hasn't been involved with everything on the flip side rob has been i think willing to be a uh expert on a lot of these Mm -hmm. um, adaptations just to like his whole concern is with accuracy. And I think that that's what he took umbrage with the candy on Hulu was the lack of accuracy, despite the fact that he said he talked to the he's like, it's weird because I talked to them, the writers. And then he said he talked to Elizabeth Moss when she was initially attached to play candy. But then she quit. Jessica Biel took over. He said he never talked to Jessica Biel, which Mm. the reporter for The Advocate said, interestingly, that's interesting because Jessica Beale said you were great. She told Entertainment Weekly that you were a great source of information. And he's like, well, I never talked to her. Well, I guess but he could be a great notes. source of information without them ever having to actually speak. Yeah, maybe it's what the reporter's like. Maybe she, Elizabeth Moss passed the notes on mm-hmm. uh, after after she quit. But yeah, that's I, I imagine if you're not going to be, you know, if you want it to be, you're the star, you're the sympathetic character, and they're not telling that version of the story, that you're not interested in right, participating. Right, for sure. Ultimately, a jury decided that Candy Montgomery was acting in self-defense on the fateful night of June 13, 1980. Still, there are many who disagree, including Betty's family. Her brother, Richard Pomeroy, said in a January 2022 episode of Oxygen Snapped, I don't think justice was served in the least bit. I think it was a murder. Was it a crime of passion, a revenge killing, or truly self-defense? Only two people know what really happened that afternoon when Candy stopped by Betty's house to pick up young Lisa's swimsuit, and only one survived to have their side of the story told. So what do we think? Definitely shows the importance of having a competent defense attorney and not thinking if you're a prosecutor, oh, this is a slam dunk. Mm Mm-hmm. We don't have to worry about there's no way a jury is going to believe that and be really ready to refute every single element of the crime um, and every don't single be element overconfident. of the defense. 
Yeah, don't be overconfident, certainly. Do you think, do you buy the repressed childhood memory stuff? I think that the memory that it's based on was so, it just seems so weak. It just seems mm. like it doesn't, not the fact that she was weak when it happened, but it just doesn't sound like when my leg was crushed by a train, my mom shushed me. It was, I was playing hide and go seek with a little boy and I cut myself on a fountain or like a spigot on the side of the wall and it, and it cut my hand and my mom shushed me. So it's to me, I mean, I guess I'm not a psychologist, so I can't judge the impact of certain memories, but it seems like such a, small thing to mm-hmm. to latch onto and point to and say oh that that occurrence is what caused me to murder someone with an axe and hit them 41 times yeah that's me as a lay person if i was on a jury i would go i'm not really buying that second part it'd be one thing you know the the covering their bases and explaining how every single exit was blocked and that betty was like i am going to kill you you are not leaving this room then you've just checked all the boxes for against the wall no more duty to retreat because you can't and you're mm-hmm. acting reasonable in whatever you do. But for me, the that would be you hit her hard enough to gr- run out the front door. But what occurred and then using that, uh, I would not have been swayed as a juror. But then again, I was not a juror. So I'm looking yeah. at this with the benefit of hindsight and years and years of other people's input. Yeah. And the 80s were a different time for psychologists to be expert mm-hmm. witnesses, too, and and for defenses like this to be taken um as seriously as as they were then, I don't think that this would be as impactful to a jury now. It also seems like to be shushed is not an uncommon thing. That's and not at the some first point time. over from four to thirty, you probably had that happen a couple of times. At least, yeah, more than once, less than a thousand times. I don't yeah. know, but yeah, so it is a very common thing to be like that was the catalyst. It's not like she's like she began to sing, you know, this really specific right. nursery rhyme and it triggered this memory. It's like you said being just is like that happens. It's pretty commonplace. And, you know, applying current law to the the offense back then, now with Stand Your Ground in Texas which got passed in 2007, you don't have a duty to retreat at all. You just have to prove that you were lawfully you had a lawful right to be present in the location which she was invited in Mm -hmm. to the house so she didn't break in she didn't provoke according to her testimony that you know you don't provoke the person that you use deadly force against and that you're not engaged in any criminal activity so like even now under loose say it again check 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 yeah check 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 even now under these like much much looser laws that we have and i think there's like 27 other states that have these senior ground laws so that's um that's one of those things when I think we're all right to be outraged by a verdict that we think is morally reprehensible. But when you look at something that's morally reprehensible and go, oh, but this was legally correct, then mm-hmm. that's when you go, well, how do we change that law? You know, it's like mm-hmm. people messaging about the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict of like, I really, you know, this this is morally reprehensible to me. And it's like, well, if the law is written in a way that these actions constitute that that verdict mm-hmm. then the, the irritation the frustration the anger you should feel is then with the lawmakers and the people that have passed those laws and what can you do now nine times out of ten it's locally you know with either mm-hmm. and also in a lot of cases of self-defense prosecutors won't even bring the charges if they go oh well this is clearly self-defense we're not even going to charge them um so having you know the right prosecutors and the right legislators in your area that are reflecting your values and the laws that are uh, governing you yeah i think that's a good point e- Instead of being angry with the jury that they got it wrong, 
they got it right based on what they were the jury instru- how the jury instructions are written. Mm-hmm. You got to zoom out and say who is really responsible for this and who do we really need to be angry with and how can we change that if we are angry with them. Yeah, because I think that that absolutely our laws as a society should reflect our general moral consensus. And if it is a general consensus that we're outraged with results like this, well, then, okay, well, what do we then do? Mm -hmm. How do we organize to make sure that the laws reflect accurately what we want to see? Absolutely. Well, we have been having a ton of fun on our tour. So much We're going back out on the road on Saturday, heading to Boston. Then New York, then Philly, doing a little... um, Northeast. I was about to do a little East Coast, but I can remember the Boys (laughs) to Men song. (laughs) Boys to Men, A, B, C, (laughs) But the Motown Philly. That's right. Um, Yeah, so if you want to be a part of that, there are still some tickets available to a couple of the shows. You can go to SinisterHood.com slash live shows. We'll see you there. Uh, The Judge Christie segments have been... A hoot and a holler. <laughs> and when I say holler, I emphasize holler. There's a lot of passionate <laughs> opinions happening in the room. So we would love to see you come be a part of it. Cheers and jeers. We cheers and jeers. Yes, we may change it to the name of the segment to that. <laughs> <laughs> and to uh, to rephrase, you do want to be a part of this. It oh, is yes, yes, yes. Fun. It's very fun. Yeah, no, we're having a great time. We love meeting everyone in the meet and greets and getting to put – so many faces with names, and um, it's been awesome just to connect with everyone. And the topics have been super fun too. So, and the ones for this are going to be really good too. They and are. Then you you emailed our Philadelphia topic to the theater, and they were like, "Oh, good choice." Yeah, yeah. And we're like, so I was from like, a Philadelphia, okay. love and this. a Phillyite. I don't know what they yes. call themselves. Phillians, Philadelphian Phillies. I'm calling Philly. them Phillies. Yeah, that's Philadelphia Phillies. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. When you when you have a local that's like, "Oh yeah, good choice." That makes you feel good. Oh, yeah. For sure. Well, I also have a different kind of live show. Heather is uh, evilly laughing right now (laughs) uh, because she is also uh, involved in this. But this Thursday, the 9th, 9 p.m. at Dallas Comedy Club, I am going to be participating in a show called People Presenting Things, where Heather (laughs) has presented a slideshow powerpoint i'm not entirely sure the whole show the uh performers do not know what they will be commenting on but they are given a powerpoint slideshow some type of thing that they have to on the spot improvise and and make up stuff about so heather has made it up heather knows what i like but she really knows what i hate and i have a feeling it's going to be stuff that she knows i do not know much about I'm very excited to see. <laughs> there's visual. Mine, I made sure there's pictures and animations. So oh, wow. Well, if you've seen the videos Heather does for Patreon, you know that this is um, a specialty of hers. So I'm if excited. you want to come see whatever this is, I don't know, and see me try and bullshit my way through it as an expert, uh, tickets are available at our on our website. You can go to sinisterhood.com slash live shows. There'll be a link for it there. Again, it's this Thursday, the 9th at 9 p.m. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. 
As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves and Getting Into It tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, which in May was a Rodney Reed update, and patron-exclusive video and audio content including Am I the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, True Crime Headlines, and so much more. And patrons in the Getting Into It tier are uh, able to vote on a bonus content segment each month that they would like to get live-streamed, and then also they get to vote on one episode a month. Yes, they do. You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. For patrons not in the U.S., you also have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual membership for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit SinisterHood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. And if you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit SinisterHood.com, click on Shop in the top banner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. Or you can share any of our episodes with them just by clicking the three little dots in the top right-hand corner. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. We're also on YouTube and TikTok. Christy, where are you out on the computer? I am on Twitter and TikTok at Christy or GTFO, and I am on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I'm on Twitter at MCK versus the world and on TikTok and Instagram at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Heather Rossi. Aaliyah Haley. Sydney Carl. Megan Trejo. Rhiannon Morrow. Ellen Cambron. Sarah McLeod. Juliana. Emily Gregory. Brandy Schloman. Leona Drojmuller. Michelle Pierce. Deanna Fakiron. Paris. Sarah Snyder. Atypical Therapy. Savannah Rogers. Christina Ruano. Kalyani Bott. Storm Mellick. Rebecca Hoffman. Zandra. Casey Randolph. Rachel Havern. Alexandra Hodgins. Heather B. and Lily. Laura McCoy. Rihanna Maggie. Steffi. Haley. Bethany Flage. Aaron Morgan. Angela Danger. Dana Bissey. Laura Gregory. Mary Chapman. Jenna Bauer. Amber Brewer. Morgan Pappenfoot. Alyssa McKay. Tara Peterson. Nicole. Rue. Courtney Thomas. Michelle G. Jillian Bynum. Renee. Ivy Knight. Katerina Fry. Caroline Kelch. Brooke Bullard. Taylor Forst. Ashley Stratton. Thank you so much for your support. We hope we pronounced your names correctly. We sincerely appreciate all you do. We could not do this without you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. <laughs> Sin is-